Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. A century ago, William Butler Yeats wrote a poem called The Second Coming, but he wasn't a Christian. He was actually a student of the occult, and yet his poem ended up being eerily prophetic. Yeats wrote the poem in the aftermath of World War I. He knew that something had changed with that awful war, millions of casualties such as the world had never seen. History had taken an ominous turn. He writes, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the world is churning basically what he's saying. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. What he means by that, he is mourning the fact that creation has been separated from its creator. He continues by saying things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Again, Yeats is lamenting that the world seems to be falling apart. He writes, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed. Were you watching the reports about the baseball game a couple of nights ago? I'm not sure if it was last night or the night before when shots rang out and the game had to be suspended. I believe it's in Washington, D.C. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and indeed it was. I wrote about this in my book, 100 Prophecies in 100 Years. World War I marked a new era in world history. Yeats wrote, surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Spiritus Mundi is pagan symbolism. Yeats then goes on to describe the rise of a beast that looks like a sphinx. This beast has been asleep for 20 centuries. But now, says Yeats, the darkness drops again as it slouches toward Bethlehem. You know what Yeats is doing here? He is seeing that the moral influence of Christianity was shaken. You see, for centuries, Christianity has been the tent pole holding up the canvas of civilization. A Christian definition of right and wrong came to permeate the entire planet. Religions and governments tried to show how good they were by using biblical principles. Human rights and human dignity were defined by the teachings of Jesus Christ. In the early 1900s, however, a new religion emerged to challenge the supremacy of, 
of Christianity. It's the religion of secular humanism, the religion of the public square. It's all around us. We're engulfed by it. The Bible describes its followers as lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is exactly the type of life that William Yates pursued. He was a lover of self. Although he won the Nobel Prize for literature, he was really a rebel at heart. Serial adulterer with a long list of affairs, political revolutionary who soured on democracy, an admirer of the Italian dictator Mussolini. But most of all, Yeats was a lover of the occult. Folks, he was an enemy of Christ. He dabbled in Hinduism, contacting the dead, automatic writing. In short, Yeats was 100 years ahead of his time. Unwittingly, he foreshadowed this furious battle we see today between good and evil, a battle that will culminate with the rapture of the church and the rise of the beast of Revelation 13, the one known as the Antichrist. At first, this great leader of the new world order he will dazzle the nations. But in the last half of his reign, all hell will break loose upon the planet. Jesus said, if those days were not cut short, no one would survive. By the end of the tribulation period, it will be evident to everyone that human ingenuity is incapable of governing the planet apart from God. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It will be at that precise moment, when all hope is gone, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords will make his appearance. It will be a glorious appearance, such as the world has never known. When Christ came the first time, he came quietly, born in a humble manger in a faraway town. When Christ comes the second time, it will be the most spectacular event in world history. Beginning in verse 29, Jesus gives us three facts about his second coming. Let's look at them one by one. First, fact number one, is the sequence, the sequence of events. Verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. Over the last few weeks, we've learned a lot about the tribulation period. It's described for us very vividly here in verses 4 to 28. When the church of Jesus Christ is raptured out, before the seven-year period begins, everything that restrains evil upon our planet is going to be gone. Of course, this is already beginning, isn't it? Over the last century, the restraints have fallen right and left. The church in Europe, one time strong, has virtually collapsed. Sexual boundaries virtually disappeared. The institution of marriage 
has been battered to the verge of irrelevance. Many are asking, why get married at all? Why not just move in and out of relationships without any long-term commitment? There was a day when our culture placed a high value on raising kids in a stable, secure, protective environment. And that's why there was a widespread consensus, Democrats, Republicans, everybody else, consensus that gambling was bad. There was a consensus that pornography was bad, that abortion was bad, that marijuana, it's bad. We want to protect our kids from these things. But one by one, these vices have been turned into virtues. And yet the Bible repeatedly reminds us that the Lord does indeed reign over history. This is not happening by chance. Jesus reigns with great precision. The prophet Daniel reveals that God has two timelines, one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. The Gentile timeline is given in Daniel chapter 2 in the form of a large statue. The head of gold is Babylon, the first Gentile world kingdom. Daniel said to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, who saw this statue in a dream, Daniel said to him, you, O king, are the head of gold. The kingdom of Babylon lasted a little over 60 years, 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. The second worldwide kingdom is Persia. The chest and arms of silver, Daniel said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, this kingdom will be inferior to yours, but it did last longer from 539 to 331 B.C., a little over 200 years. The third worldwide kingdom would be Greece, the belly and thighs of brass, which Daniel said would rule over the whole earth. Its, its rule extended to places that Babylon and Persia never saw because of Alexander the Great, the furious warrior undefeated in battle who sat down and cried when there was nothing left to conquer. Greece ruled from 331 B.C. to 168 B.C., a little over 160 years. And then the fourth worldwide kingdom arose. It was Rome, the greatest empire yet, strong as iron, Daniel said, for iron breaks and smashes everything. Rome ruled over 600 years, 168 B.C. to 476 B.C., the fifth kingdom, which we are seeing, have seen, is Rome divided, or a divided Europe, what was formerly the Roman Empire, divided. Daniel said the feet and toes were partly of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, exactly what we've seen with Europe. Of course, Rome split in two, the eastern leg, the western leg, and then it shattered further into a million pieces as we saw in the aftermath of World War I and World War II. 
But something happened after World War II. For the first time in centuries, Europe started uniting. Isn't that interesting? First, there was the common market. Today, it's the European Union. You see, the sixth empire is Rome revived. The old Roman Empire coming back together. Daniel prophesies this in Daniel chapter 7. The rise of the little horn. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So I watched. This horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the ancient of days came and pronounce judgment in favor of the saints. You see, this sixth empire, Rome revived, Europe reunited, what's often called the New World Order. It's forming right now. It will be extremely powerful, like iron. And you know what? It'll be extremely fragile, like clay. That's why it will only last seven years until the Ancient of Days arrives. You see, Daniel pictured the seventh empire as a rock. You know who that rock is? That rock is Jesus Christ. He's going to come and he is going to smash all of the world empires. Daniel puts it like this, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. All of this, friends, has unfolded before our eyes, and it will continue to unfold in a sequential, orderly fashion that has been so accurately predicted 2,500 years ago by Daniel that critics have charged that Daniel must have written these prophecies after many of them occurred. But it's not true. Daniel wrote at the time Daniel lived. So this is the Gentile timeline, okay? But friends, there is also a Jewish timeline. It's found seven chapters after the Gentile timeline in Daniel 2. It's found in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. When the Lord said to Daniel, 77s of years have been decreed for your people. Who were Daniel's people? The Jews. 77s. That's 490 years Friends, you see the red there? 69 sevens or 483 years have already happened. As Sir Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard did the research on this, the great detective mind, he showed all of his research in the book, The Coming Prince. He notes that Jesus was publicly welcomed into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, March 30th, A.D. 33, which happened to be exactly to the very day, 173,880 days, 69 sevens, 483 years after 
the decree to rebuild Jerusalem given by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. That's an astounding prophecy, folks. Seven years in the Jewish timeline, one seven remain. That, folks, is the seven years of tribulation. During those seven years, which is yet to come, the Gentile timeline and the Jewish timeline are going to converge. Rome revived this new world order. Europe united. Rome revived. The sixth empire foretold by Daniel, headed by the Antichrist. It will reign at the same time the last seven years of the Jewish timetable unfold. The tribulation period has dual purposes. First, it will reveal the futility of mankind to govern themselves apart from God. The Antichrist empire, you know what's going to happen to that? It's going to go up in smoke after only seven years. But at the same time, God is going to use the pain, the suffering of this seven-year period of time, and he's going to take his Jewish people, and he is going to drive the Jewish people to their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as taught in Romans eleven twenty-six. Friends, <laughs> who could do this but our God? <laughs> Truly, history, it's his story. It's his story. In fact, friends, your personal story is his story. The Bible says all your days were ordained before one of them came to be. As I said along my mother after she had passed away, I just thought to myself that very verse. All of her days written in the book, 94 plus, 94 years plus, they were over because God had ordained it as such. It was that very verse that comforted me after my dad died some 45 years ago. When I was a young man, he was a young man. Dad did not live one day more or one day less than God ordained. The same is true for you. Our God reigns with exact precision he reigns over every moment of every day, and he causes all of history to unfold in an exact sequence of events that was prophesied by Daniel thousands of years ago. What an awesome God we have. Now let's move to fact number two about the second coming. The sky. That spectacular picture there taken over the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, where uh, our son Andrew is uh, serving the Lord right now. Verse 29, Jesus said, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken and at that time, the sign of the Son of Man, it's going to appear in the sky. And all of the nations will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Oh, man, what a moment. You know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
there were also strange things happening in the sky? Attorney Rick Larson has demonstrated this in the Star of Bethlehem DVD. The most amazing thing that I have observed, if we could bring that up, please, Star of Bethlehem DVD. The most amazing thing that I have observed in watching this video, if you haven't seen it, it's just, it's one of those things, it's a must-see. You see, they showed how NASA now has software that you can go back in time and you can observe what the skies would have looked like at any given location at any given time. Isn't that amazing? Starting in September of 3 BC, Larson observes that there was a triple conjunction of Jupiter, the king planet, with Regulus, the king star. It was spectacular. Larson believes this is when Jesus was conceived. And this happening in the skies is what the Magi noticed over in Persia that caught their attention. Nine months later was June of 2 B.C., when Jupiter and Venus would have appeared to touch, forming another bright star. Amazingly, Jupiter and Venus have not been that close since. Then on December 25th, 2 BC, Jupiter makes a retrograde motion where it appears to back up. The argument is that this is perhaps what the wise men were attracted to, which led them to Bethlehem. Now, of course, all of this correlates with what the Bible teaches in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, the skies pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. In the skies... We see the precision of God. The heavenly bodies are so exact in their orbits, so exact in their functions, that we can make the calculations that are necessary to land a spacecraft on the moon. And now they're preparing for Mars. That would be absolutely impossible unless the functions of the heavenly bodies were exactly precise. In the skies, we also see God speaking to us. In the coming years, I believe we're going to see all kinds of unusual phenomenon in the skies. Over the last few months, the U.S. military has been releasing previously classified UFOs. And they, uh, UFO reports. And they've caused quite a ruckus. I don't know if you've seen any of those reports. Bible scholar Dr. Michael Heiser contends that the UFOs are real, that they are largely demonic activity. He's written a bunch of theology books about the unseen world, about the demons and the angels. He's written two novels about UFOs, and they use all of the accurate research. It's sort of written like the Left Behind series. You take the biblical timeline and then you insert fictional characters into it. That's what he does. So if you like uh, science fiction and, and that sort of thing, you're really going to enjoy portent and facade. This underscores how important it's going to be to be students of the word as we move deeper into the end times. Because you know what? 
along with Bible scholars like Michael, Dr. Michael Heiser, there's going to be all kinds of deceivers out there. Deception galore. They're going to say all kinds of crazy things about these UFOs. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period, the Bible says there will be signs in the sky. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give light. Stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. Luke 21, 25, Jesus adds, growing men will faint from terror. People will literally die of fright. Why? Because Jesus is signaling here the whole universe is beginning to disintegrate. You see, right now, the Bible tells us, Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is holding everything in the universe together by what? The power of his word. That's what it says. Without that, gravity would weaken. The orbits of stars and planets would fluctuate. As the return of Christ approaches, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They're going to start to dysfunction. Pastor John MacArthur says, the heavenly bodies will careen helter-skelter through space and all navigation is going to be futile because all of the stable reference points will cease. There have been many movies that have speculated about asteroids hitting the earth and so forth. And indeed, the book of Revelation does point to that. These things could very well happen. But we must remember that our God is reigning over all of it. And as the book of Job teaches us, Satan cannot lift a finger without God's permission. Isn't that great to know? Verse 30, Jesus teaches that just as man's desperation reaches a climax, he will appear in the sky. The Bible says, Revelation 1-7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all of the peoples of the earth will mourn. You know why they're going to be mourning? Because they refuse to believe in him. At that very moment, they're going to be racked with guilt and fear of judgment. And this brings us to fact number three about the second coming. The great selection. The great selection. In verse 31, Jesus says, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. You see, one of the responsibilities that angels have is to gather unbelievers for punishment and believers for reward. Matthew 13 puts it like this. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, they're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Those are the very words of Jesus himself. The same thing is taught in Matthew 13, 49, which says, 
This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and they will separate the wicked from the righteous and they will throw the wicked into the fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the age, friends, there's gonna be a great sorting out. True believers in Jesus are separated from the unbelievers and the counterfeit believers. And this sorting out, it's gonna happen in two stages. The first time is gonna be at the rapture, when Jesus returns for his church before the tribulation period begins, and the Bible says one will be taken and one will be left. Two men walking up a hill, two ladies grinding at the mill. One is taken, the other is left. That's the rapture. And then there will be another sorting out at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus returns with his people to defeat the Antichrist and set up his millennial kingdom. You know what's going to happen right before, right before he sets up his millennial kingdom? It's the separation of the sheep from the goats. We're going to be looking at that in a few weeks. Matthew chapter 25, the next chapter, verses 31 to 46. The sheep and the goats. It's going to be a judgment of the believers during the tribulation period. The sheep and the goats are going to be separated. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows us from the inside out? <laughs> that he knows our hearts? And friends, he will make no mistakes at the final judgment. All true believers will be separated from the unbelievers and the counterfeit believers. At this final sorting out, there's going to be nowhere to hide. The true intention of every heart is going to be made known. The Bible says, 1 Chronicles 29, 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you are pleased with integrity. Very interesting word. You know what integrity is? Integrity is where our life is integrated. There's no duplicity. There's no double-mindedness. Rather, we are the same person in private that we are in public. The book of 1 John, the Bible teaches that the final evaluation, whether you are a true believer or not, it's going to be based on three criteria. Very clearly laid out in the book of 1 John. First, are you living a life of obedience to God? First criteria is obedience. 1 John 2, 3 says, we know that we have come to know him. Why? If we keep his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. So that's the first criteria. Do you practice what you preach? Are you living out your faith in Christ? In other words, is it more than mere words? Second criteria is love. Do you truly love people? Do you really love them? 1 John 2, 9 says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. 
That's the second criteria. Do you love people with the same unconditional love that God has for you? Sacrificial, agape love. In other words, the first two criteria tell us that we have to have a balance of grace and truth, obedience and love. Obedience to the scripture, love for others. Third criteria is this. Third criteria is trust. Where's your trust? Are you trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for your salvation? 1 John 5.10 says, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It's not in Muhammad. It's not in Buddha. It's not in any other God. It's in his son. That's where the life is. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. So I ask you, friends, today, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that forgiveness will be granted upon the confession of your sins? And do you believe that Jesus raised from the dead on the third day, that he's alive right now, this very moment, reigning over the world, and he is capable of giving you eternal life upon confession of faith in him? If so, friends, you know what? You don't have a thing to fear. You don't have a thing to fear. The Bible says his spirit bears witness with our human spirit that we are children of the heavenly father. You can know today that you're on the road to heaven. No doubts. For the Bible says, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may, what does it say? That you may know that you have eternal life. Don't let anyone tell you you can't know because the Bible says you can know. I close with this. A few weeks ago, I happened to come across a video on YouTube featuring the old rock and roller, Alice Cooper. <laughs> there he is. Uh, first, I was amazed that he was still alive. <laughs> I, I remember him from my uh, early years, teenage years and stuff. So I was amazed he was alive. The second thing, even more amazed, find out he's a follower of Christ. As I started to poke around on the internet, I was absolutely fascinated by the life story of Alice Cooper. Alice's real name is Vince. He actually grew up in a church that was Mormon in name, but get this, it actually broke away from the Mormons. They were disowned by the Mormons because of their faithfulness to the Bible. From all appearances, both his father and his grandfather were genuine believers as well as ministers by vocation. In fact, Alice did missionary work with his dad on the Apache Indian Reservation as a teenager. Isn't that un unbelievable? But he obviously fell away, didn't he? <laughs> he was everything your parents warn you about. 
<laughs> For many years, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll until it finally almost killed him. His wife Cheryl had actually left him because she couldn't watch him kill himself. Alice says the cocaine was speaking a lot louder than Cheryl was. Finally, one day I looked in the mirror and it looked like makeup, but it was really blood coming down from my eyes. Or might I have been hallucinating? These are his words. I don't know. I flushed the rock down the toilet. I woke up. I called her, Cheryl, and I said, I'm done. And she said, right, I've heard this before. <laughs> you have to prove it. And one of the deals was that they start going to church. Alice says, I knew who Jesus was, and I was denying him. I knew that there had to either come a point where I accepted Christ and started living that life, or if I died in my sin, I was in a lot of trouble. After accepting Christ, Alice thought about changing his name. His pastor said, no, 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 don't do that. Look where God has put you. You're Alice Cooper. But what if you're now following Christ? And you're a rock star, but not living the rock star life. Your lifestyle is now your testimony. You know what, folks? Hasn't been easy for Alice. Amazingly, he and his wife celebrated their 45th anniversary this year. Can you believe that? That in itself is a miracle. Overcoming alcohol was another huge hurdle for Alice. Gradually, over the years, he's changed his act. Much of the old repertoire is no longer performed. Any song promoting sex, drugs, drinking, it gets the axe. Alice now calls himself. He says, I'm a prophet of doom. He says, I think my job is to warn people about Satan. Satan is not a myth. Don't sit around pretending like Satan is a joke. Satan is not a joke. And neither is the return of Christ. Jesus is coming, friends. And there is going to be a great separation. The believers to heaven, the unbelievers, the counterfeit believers to hell. The stakes could not possibly be higher. Are you ready to meet him? 